0: so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, in Him you also, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I still remember vividly a few years ago coming out of a Simeon Trust workshop, getting in the car with a fellow friend, pastor friend of ours, Drew Hunter, after Tommy had just preached to us and uh, we sat down and we said, "Tommy Johnston is the man." <laughs> so we are excited. I'm excited to have you as a friend, blessed, and it's good to be here with you. So my daughter got engaged just a couple weeks ago, which I can tell you're all excited about. <laughs> That's okay. You don't you don't need to be. You don't know us, but we are and uh, you are excited about a wedding that just took place, and rightfully so. I remember when Jen and I were engaged and when we got married, perhaps you remember that as well. It's not not when we got engaged, yeah. You probably don't remember that. But when you were engaged and married, uh, and remember the joy of being loved, having this beautiful, precious person love you so much that they joyfully unite their life with yours. Being loved by another is life-changing. And it changes your life not only in a grand way, but in the moment-by-moment, day-by-day ways. You come home to somebody who loves you. You have somebody to share your joys and struggles with. You have someone who has devoted their life to know you more and let you know them more. Do you know God's love like that? Do you know God's love in a way that it changes your life? Not just in a grand scale way but in the moment-by-moment, day-by-day way. In Ephesians 1, 3-14, we discover the great God of love. And if I was to summarize this text in one sentence, it would be this. In Christ, you are destined to be glorious because you are loved by a glorious God. coming to ephesians 1 3 through 14 is kind of like this it's kind of like a picture yourself entering into a mansion don't ask me why you're there you're just there and you're looking around and you walk into this huge beautiful room and you and, and a painting on the wall catches your attention you go over to it and it is breathtaking it's the most beautiful piece of artwork you've ever seen a masterpiece But as you look and examine this painting closely, being absorbed by it, you realize something strange. It doesn't seem like the frame is actually uh, attached to the painting. You actually lift the frame off, and you realize that the painting is actually on the wall itself. Not only that, but you see paper, wallpaper around the edges of the painting and it's starting to come up and you look behind and you realize that the painting is actually extending beyond the picture that you can see so you start tearing apart the wallpaper and it comes off really easily and you just tear and tear it's coming off in huge sheets and you realize that this painting is not just this little painting on a wall it's actually floor to ceiling on all the walls in the room and over across the top of the ceiling. It's a mural. And as you look at this mural, something catches your eye again. There are groups of people everywhere, but there's one group of people particularly that catches your eye because in that group is you. And you are radiating with beauty and glory like you could never imagine you could be. That's what it's like to come to Ephesians 1. You think you know what Christianity is about. (laughs) And it's beautiful. You think you know what God's salvation is like. And it's amazing. And then the Apostle Paul starts ripping the wallpaper off. And you realize that this thing is huge and glorious and a masterpiece. And you're in it. You notice that this approach to things is quite different from our cultural approach. Uh, Culturally, we like to believe in the value of self, which is a good thing. But the substance, the foundation of that value comes from where? It comes from the portrait that you paint for yourself, of yourself, your self-portrait. Be yourself, express yourself, trust in yourself. When your opinion of yourself is the only opinion that matters, it's actually a very lonely place to be. And in Ephesians 1, we discover that there is an opinion before the foundations of the world. And he loves you. And that's where your value comes from. You are destined to be glorious because you are loved by a glorious God. And we're going to look at this morning the way in which this glorious God loves us. And we're going to look at two primary threads that go through this text. We're not Ephesians 1 is so jam-packed full of amazing theology. I I can't describe all the mural this morning, but we can trace the two primary threads through this. And so the first one is that the great God of love loves you through and in his Son. So look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I would encourage you not to disregard the statement, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, as hyperbole, as exaggeration, as Paul's like, man, it's amazing, every spiritual blessing. It's not really every spiritual blessing. It's just a lot, but he uses the word every. No. No. I think he actually means every single spiritual blessing. Don't disregard it either, saying, well, it's spiritual blessing, you know, so it's some kind of weird spiritual thing. That's great. You know, maybe salvation, I guess, whatever, right? No, notice all the way down in verse 10 that this includes a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So this encompasses everything. This is actually every blessing that the Father has. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Ephesians 1, 3-14 in the Greek is actually one single sentence. Basically, the structure of this, of this is like the Apostle Paul was like, okay, let me just start listing the blessings. And he just starts emotionally just pouring out and he can't even stop to end the sentence. They just keep coming. The language in this uh, emphasizes again and again the abundance and bounty of the blessing that God gives to us. In verse 6, his glorious grace. In verse 7, the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In verse 8. In verse 9, he did this with all wisdom and insight. God harnessed all the wisdom, the infinite wisdom that he had, and applied it to the purpose of lavishing all of his grace on us. It includes in verse 10, the fullness of time, as I said, to unite all things. In verse 11, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the will to give us everything. This sounds fanciful. This sounds like, how could this be? The infinite God pouring every blessing that an infinite God can create into us. But I would draw your attention to how he does it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. This is the means by which he gets his blessing, all of his blessing to us. It's in Christ. In his son, notice in verse four, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse six, he blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood. He made known to us the mystery of his will, setting forth a plan in christ to unite all things in christ in christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his will so that we who are the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory in christ you also heard the word of the truth and believed in christ and you were in christ sealed with the holy spirit everything everything happens in christ so behind this is an amazing Trinitarian theology that Paul weaves through this. I was really blessed how Trinitarian our worship was this morning. It was great. Because Paul is assuming that you understand this, <laughs> that God, at his most fundamental level, is not an isolated individual who was pining away in eternity waiting for some company to show up. But rather, God is fundamentally Father. A Father who has eternally begotten a Son. He is Father because His very nature is to give Life to another. Uh, one of the images that the Bible uses of God is um, a river of life, or a spring, or a fountain. It actually, I think, begins in Eden, but um, it's very obvious in places. For example, like Ezekiel forty-seven, where from the temple itself, the new, the, the glorious temple, uh, the river of life flows into the rest of the world. In Revelation 22, the river of life is actually flowing directly from the throne of God. So, so God in his nature is pictured as this overflowing fountain, this spring that is just flooding forth, a river of life pouring out, pouring out, pouring out infinitely. Infinitely. And God's infinite pouring out is so full and so perfect that it is actually his son. The father pours out his begotten son. He, the son, as Hebrews 1 puts it, is the radiance of the glory of God as light Shines and 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 the radiance shines out from the light. So the Father and the Son. The Father is the glory. The Son is the light. The radiance shining of the glory out into the, to the world. That means that the Son is the fullness of the glory of the Father. First John 1, 2, amazing verse. Listen to what it says. The, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, the eternal life is the Son himself. Who's been pouring out from the Father from all of eternity? This means at the center of all things is a Father Son relationship of infinite love. At the center of all being is a God whose very foundational and eternal nature is that he loves to pour out his life and goodness into others. That's who he is. Love is not hard for God. Love is what God is. That's what he does, that's his nature. It comes without thought, it comes naturally, habitually, fundamentally. And when he loves, he holds nothing back. Paul just is beginning to describe the glory that the Father is giving to us. Read, um, if you look ahead in verse 20. He's praying this prayer and he says that he worked in Christ when he raised, he wants his power in us that he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above our rule and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and man, that is awesome. Like all that, it's like, wow, Jesus Christ, everything under his feet, amazing. Then you read the next. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we were made to be the fullness of the son who is the fullness of the father. Read chapter 3, verse 18. Again, the apostle Paul it says that we may be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, this fullness, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's just what Jesus prayed, though. John 17. You remember John 17? Jesus' prayer, the last prayer he prayed with his disciples. I'll read a little portion of it. He said this, I do, I do not ask for these only, these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So us, right here, he's praying. He's, this is prayer still in effect right now. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. To be a believer in Jesus Christ means that you are relocated into the Son. You no longer live by yourself. You no longer live in your flesh. You no longer live merely in the world. You live most fundamentally in the Son. That is how the Father sees you. You are actually united to the triune relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the love that the Father has always had for the Son is the love that the Father now has for you. friend if you came in here this morning maybe looking for something maybe you came on the invitation of a friend and you haven't quite figured out what your opinion on this christianity stuff is it strikes me that maybe this version of god is not the one you expected to find maybe a nice god who likes good people but this eternal Niagara of overflowing love? Perhaps even Christians this morning would not be surprising to me that hearing this, you also might be surprised. Because a lot of times we tend to picture the holiness of God as if that makes God someone who constantly looks on us with skeptical, eyebrow raised, arms folded, saying, please, I have given you so much. You got to show me gratitude. I'm tired of your failing. A stingy God. That stingy God is as much God as I am. Which means he's not God, if you haven't figured that out. that's a comparison. Because that is a God that's more like me than it is like God. This is the real God. The God who loves us in his Son. So that's the first thread. The second thread, only slightly less amazing, Not only that he blesses us and loves us in and through his son, but he blesses us and loves us with his electing, predestining grace. With a love that is before the foundation of the world. Notice that this is woven into this as well. It starts right off at the beginning, verse four, even as this is the first example, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse five, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He has this plan that he figured out before the foundations of the world that he's making known to us a purpose which he set forth in Christ. In verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he even sends his Holy Spirit to guarantee what he has already determined, our inheritance to come to us until we acquire possession of it everywhere in this text now i realize in our culture we love our freedom of choice so this may not sound like love at all this may sound horrible to you and even in the church whenever we start talking about the doctrines of election and predestination temperatures rise i imagine even as i'm talking some of you are thinking what's he gonna say perhaps readying your arguments to challenge if my view doesn't align with yours. You know, when we read the Bible, it is important not only to understand what is written and what it means, but why it was written. And that is especially true when it comes to complicated doctrines like election and predestination. So why does the Apostle Paul emphasize this electing, predestining grace of God? Well, I think it's pretty clear. He is describing the way in which God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. His first example of that, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse five makes it really plain. In love, he predestined us. All of this Is to the praise of his glorious grace that he's lavishing on us. In other words, the primary point that Paul's trying to make is that God loves us and he has loved us from before the foundation of the world. He has set his affection upon us before the foundation of the world. This is a common theme, by the way, when election comes up, Deuteronomy 7, when uh, Paul is describing to Israel what Paul, <laughs> God is telling Israel through Moses why he chose them. And he says, It was not because you were more in number, not because you were an oppressive people that I chose you, but the Lord set his love on you and chose you even though you were the fewest of all the peoples because the Lord loves you. I chose to love you because I love you. (laughs) That's essentially the logic. Paul is emphasizing the primacy and the certainty of God's love. Well, first of all, let me just say what this doesn't mean. Then we'll get a little bit into what it does mean. First of all, it doesn't mean that our choices don't matter. That's the way our logic usually runs. If God already chose me, then my choice doesn't matter. Right? Um, But that is to think exactly the opposite the way Paul is wanting us to think. That is to think actually like an ancient Greek thought or an ancient Ephesian in this case who believed that our lives are in the hands of a blind fate that's just so rolling, time is just rolling out and there's nothing you can do to change it. So for example, you, look, you read the Greek, tra- Greek tragedies and you see these guys, they go to this El- uh, Oracle of Delphi and the Oracle is like, hey... Horrible things are gonna happen to you. And the person's like, no, I don't want that to happen. So I'm gonna choose to do this so it won't happen. I'm gonna choose to do this so it won't happen. I'm gonna choose to do this so it won't happen. I'm going to choose to do this so it won't happen. And then all of those choices just made it happen. Right. That is your choices don't matter. That is not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is saying that all things are in the hands of a God who loves you, of a Father who has determined to love you. In his love, your choices will always matter. There's no possibility of anybody wanting to choose God, to choose Christ, and God to be like, I'm sorry you can't because I didn't choose you. Secondly, it doesn't mean that God is distant, that he sort of planned all this out and is just standing aside, waiting for it all to come down. That's sort of, that's the way you think of it, right? It's like God's planning all this out and he's like, okay, I did my job. Now let's just flick the domino and watch it, you know, watch them all tumble out just as I planned. So, Uh, We're going to Zionsville Fellowship right now, and I already mentioned Drew Hunter, a fellow friend of ours. He's a pastor there, and about a month ago, he gave a wonderful sermon on Romans 8, 26 and 27, which is is when Paul describes the spirit interceding in our heart, groaning with uh, intercession that is too deep for words, praying for the will of the Father in the midst of our groaning and suffering and pain. Amazing text, amazing text. And one of the illustrations that Drew used was of a, of a, young, uh, a young boy, a teenager, starting to gain some desire for independency, starting to question his parents' limitations and rules, maybe even starting to question how much his parents really do love him and how much they're trying to control him. And then one night, he's walking by his parents' bedroom, and he hears them talking, and so he eavesdrops. And he hears them talking about how they sense that there's this kind of distance and uh, how they really want to make sure to assure him over and over that they love him. Next morning he gets up and he hears his parents at the breakfast table talking about him again. And he eavesdrops on their conversation and he hears the the father talking about how he is gonna do this thing with his friends and he's gonna bring his son along so that he knows that he wants to be with him, that he wants to include him in his life. And then he hears them pray for him. And he keeps doing this. He keeps eavesdropping on conversations and hearing him talk himself, talked about over and over again, Ways in which they are planning and plotting to love him. This is what is going on in the triune God all the time about you. And what's amazing about Ephesians 1 is the Apostle Paul says that that conversation started before the foundations of the world. That's what, that's what this is all about. He is, he is planning how to bring his love to you. This is, in our concept, that's difficult to understand. Like how in the world can God be over here planning from eternity past, plotting these things? And he already knows what's gonna happen. So what's the point of the spirit being here in it and with us? And why would he, that just doesn't make any sense. It's because he loves you. Love does not stand aloof at a distance watching things take place. Love does not watch us go through problems and pain and life, joys and struggles. Love comes beside us. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. How can we, Father, Son, and Spirit, come alongside of our beloved and love them? What it does mean is that his love is behind everything. The infinite fullness of God being poured out of himself through his son into you, that's the plan. That is a hard, hard, hard plan. I would say impossible plan. And it takes everything. It takes every moment, every decision, everything in all of history to make this plan work. So what that means is that when Adam and Eve were failing in the garden and when Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites and then God tore down the empire and redeemed them and delivered them from Egypt, when the sky went dark on Golgotha and the Son of God gave up his last breath, crucified on a cross. When the Christians were persecuted and driven out of Jerusalem, when they started to send missionaries like the Apostle Paul out, beyond that into Asia Minor and Macedonia and Italy and eventually to Spain and the British Isles and eventually Africa and North America. That one of the hundreds of millions of things that God was doing is that he was coming after you. It means his love is behind everything and it means his love is certain. His affections do not grow warm and hot. They have been hot from before eternity and they will be hot for all of eternity. If you're here this morning and you do not know this love, You do not feel the love of a God who gives his son to you. Maybe you've never believed in this God at all. Let me just tell you this morning that you don't deserve this. You, like me, like Paul, like the Ephesians, are in great need of the forgiveness of our trespasses that only the riches of his grace could accomplish. Because you, like us, are a sinner. And that means much of your life does not look like this God. In fact, much of your life is in opposition to this God. And you're not worthy of his love. You're worthy of his opposition, of his hate, and of his wrath. And yet here you are and here I am because he has sought you out and he is drawing you so that you can be broken and redeemed by his love so that you can be his and so that he can be yours. Believe in that God. Believe in the real God. And if you do know this love, I know it's not, (laughs) I know it's not easy to always feel loved. My family and I, um, yeah, we've gone through some hard things. In the last few years and it's hard when all your comforts are taken away your your job your relationships break down when your body breaks down when maybe you even lose rest itself And it can feel like the foundations of the earth are uncertain and shaking. Know then that there is something stronger than the foundations of the earth, something upon which the foundations of the earth were built. And that is God's love for you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. I thank you for pouring all of yourself out in him into us. I thank you that you don't need us, but have chosen to love us in Christ. I pray this morning that every soul here will know this love, be captured by it. and will be united to you through your son. As in Jesus' name I pray, amen.